0: Let's pray. Father, we uh, want to just uh, continue this uh, worship service, God, to uh, worship you, the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And God, what a, what a great song that was, Lord, that uh, even though our sins are many, your mercy is more. And so grateful, God, that when we were, um, when we were uh, dead in our sins and trespasses, that by your mercy... Uh, you made us alive in Christ Jesus, and Lord, thank you for um, the grace that is in Christ Jesus that strengthens us to uh, to live this life. And I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that um, that you would take um, the living, abiding Holy Word of the Triune God, the Living God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just uh, bring it to our hearts today. That we would leave here. Um, just more in love with you, more resolved to uh, live um, in obedience to you, to trust and obey you and know that that that's, uh, that is the place of ultimate happiness and blessedness and success in our Christian walk is to uh, trust you and obey you so God thank you for the people that you brought here this morning it 's not an accident. I pray that uh, that you would just uh, turn our ears uh, attentive to uh, the Holy Spirit as is proclaimed here today. The words are proclaimed, and I pray, God, that you'd help me stand behind it, that I'd bring uh, no offense. Please uh, don't let me uh, get in, um, in the way. Uh, we love you, and we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus, and God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. Um, have you thought much about being Happy? About being happy. Who does anybody in here that just, that does not want to be happy? Is there anybody that really desires to suffer? Are there a few of you that are not happy because you're suffering? Probably. Today, this 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 passage today in Second Timothy chapter two three through seven is actually um, it's about happiness. It's about uh, being blessed. Actually. And, um, and this happiness and this blessing is found, as Paul's going to write to Timothy and we're going to be instructed, it's found in living our lives in submission to God's Word, to uh, live in our lives um, entangled in Christ instead of being entangled in the world. It's living our lives um, with, uh, by working hard, actually, um, in the harvest, and that we find happiness in that. Last week, last couple of weeks as we've taught through the first chapter of this second letter from Paul to Timothy, we saw that, that Paul encouraged Timothy to, um, to guard the deposit of the gospel. Um, Paul is dying. Paul is on his deathbed. Um, as he's writing this, he's got days, weeks, maybe months. He doesn't have long to go before he dies. Timothy is being handed the baton of the good deposit. And Timothy is timid. Timothy is weak. He's shy. Um, he's not Paul. But God's going to use them in, in, in just as great a way. And, um, and we heard last week that, that uh, or actually a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 1, verse 8, that Paul called Timothy to share in the suffering that's going to result from sharing the gospel, from living in the gospel. And last week we saw that he, that he encouraged Timothy. He said, Timothy, that what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... In trust of faithful men who will teach others, and now he starts off again, encouraging Timothy to be ready to suffer. He says, "He says share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ." And what we're going to see today, my prayer is that that um, it's a very kind of um, exhortive, I think, encouraging and maybe a little bit in your face kind of passage, actually. And Paul's going to encourage Timothy and us to be single-minded believers. He's going to encourage us to be rule-following or obedient believers, and then also to be hard-working believers. And he says this to Timothy. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul is encouraging Timothy for the second time that he needs to share in suffering. Paul isn't referring, though, to the, to the suffering that every human being experiences in this broken world, that every human being at some level is going to in, encounter suffering. It's just a matter of time. We live in a, in a broken world. What, what Paul is referring to is the suffering that comes as a result of living out the Christian life in this world. But I want to remind us up front that, that our goal as Christians should not be to suffer. Um, our goal is not to be martyred or to chase after suffering. However, a good soldier of Jesus Christ understands the real potential of facing suffering while living out the gospel in this post-Christian world that we're living in. That that anybody that lives out the gospel of Jesus Christ um, in this world, particularly the world that we live in today in 2017, is going to incur some type of pushback. Like never before. Except maybe the first century, actually. At the same time, we should not have a goal to avoid suffering at any cost. The ultimate goal of every Christian should be to please the one who called us or enlisted us into his service. In the same way a soldier is willing to suffer for his country, Paul urges Timothy to be willing to suffer for the gospel. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse verse 4 describes the behavior and attitude of the good soldier uh, mentioned in verse 3. This soldier is not to get entangled in civilian pursuits. And this, this has application for Timothy the pastor, and it has application for Timothy the Christian. If it has application for Timothy the Christian, it has application for you and I who profess faith. In the risen Christ. To further emphasize his point, Paul says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. It's God who enlisted us. It's God who called us into his service. The goal of every Christian should therefore, be to please the one who called us. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it all for the what? The glory of God. I asked a friend, I asked several friends, and one of them chimed in a couple days ago, and I noticed another one chimed in this morning, but I I hadn't read his response yet. But I I asked these friends who served in in a branch of the U.S. military, I actually asked them how this verse might relate to to those who serve our country today. And he sent me something called the military oath. How many people in here have been in the service? A lot of you. Thank you, by the way. Um, Are you familiar with the military oath? I bet you are. I I was not familiar with that in any way. But apparently it's the same oath that anybody that enlists in the military, whether that be army, navy, marine, whatever, it's the same oath and it says this. It should be on the screen. I'm going to put it in the first person. I, Dan Hardy, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same Constitution of the United States. And that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. And my friend went on to write this, he says he says this, he says it's a pretty serious oath. He says, uh, once in the military, especially on deployment, your mission is your life. Is that true? Your mission is your life, particularly on deployment. And then he goes on to say, he says that there's a saying in the military that if they wanted you to have a wife, they would issue you one. <laughs> they are so serious about living on mission. Funny saying, he says, my friend says this, but there's truth behind it. He goes on to say, it's difficult to focus on much else while deployed. And if you're focusing on other things, then you might be distracted from the mission. This is what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about being being entangled in a civilian life that keeps our our focus off of the risen Christ, Keep being being entangled uh, it's, it simply means to be distracted or it deadens us from pursuing Christ in his mission. What is a civilian pursuit? Anything that ultimately detracts or deadens us from pursuing Christ in his mission and there are, ver- there are many good things that can distract us from our devotion to Christ and His mission. I'm going to mention three of them. Just as I thought about my own life and I thought about the people that I know in this body, in this culture that we live in, there are three civilian pursuits that are all permissible that have the potential to entangle us, wrap us up, keep our our focus off of Christ. The first one is, it's entertainment. It's entertainment And many movies, many shows today um, just normalize sin. It's the culture we live in. But there are movies actually that do more than normalize sin, that they actually promote sin. Uh, Movies like Fifty Shades of Grey or Deadpool, shows like the Game of Thrones or Family Guy and Rick and Morty, Um, the video game like Grand Auto Theft, they all celebrate and normalize sin so strongly and overtly that it would be almost impossible to enjoy them without delighting in sin. At the very, they don't edify us. Then the question is, do they harm us? Do they keep us from a single-minded devotion to Christ? And I would ask this question, if if God's heart delights in good and hates evil, how can can a Christian love God and at the same time enjoy watching something that celebrates what God hates? To not watch such things is not legalistic, folks. Folks. Um, but it's an application of wisdom for those who desire to guard their heart. Um, those of you that kind of know my journey a little bit, that um, I made a lot of mistakes with our, with our kiddos. I remember, I think I might have even said this a few weeks ago. I don't know why I would have said it, but I, um, but I actually remember when I was a kid at Arvada Plaza Theater, I remember watching um, Cool Hand Luke and The Dirty Dozen. I remember them just being such great movies. And I couldn't wait for my boys to watch it with me. We're watching, I'm going, I don't remember any of that language or any of that that, that, um, half-dressed women and all that. I don't remember any of that. So what I do, what I've done from that point on, I do it with my wife, Nancy, today. We have no kids in the house. I do with Nancy is that I get on Plugged In. Plugged In is um, put out there by Focus on the Family, and it is a pain in the rear because you've got to be responsible. I mean, it would just be so much easier for me to take a recommendation from you and go, okay, we're going to watch it because such and such said it. But I know some of you. And I can't do that. <laughs> We've made movie recommendations where Nancy's going. Are you sure they should be watching that? But you go to Plugged In, and I think there's one called Crosswalk.com as well. And you go to it, and you and I, there's not a movie that Nancy and I watch. I'm not kidding you. Not a movie. I don't, unless it's G. If it's PG, PG13, and always R, I'm going to go through Plugged In. And it's a pain because at a minimum of 10 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes or 30 minutes, I am looking at this and I'm toiling and I'm wanting to watch this movie, but plugged in says that you're an idiot if you watch this movie. <laughs> Everybody goes, to hell that's going to watch this movie. It doesn't say that. But it's hard work, and, if, and especially you men. Um, you might, there might be some things that you can watch, but you shouldn't be submitting, submitting your kids and your, and your wife to that. Um, for, for me, just as a rule, I don't want to get too bogged down on this, but if it, if it is R and it has no historical, um, no history in it, it's not, it's, not, it's not historical, I won't watch it. It's R for a reason. There are some R-rated movies, though, that are R-rated because it really happened. PG-13 and comedy, never for me. And I want to watch it. It's funny. But it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. It, it gets me entangled in the world. It, re, it takes away my devotion, my single-minded devotion to Christ. And we can, we can be legalistic, but I dare say that, that we're more licentious in this culture than we are legalistic. And, and the, 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 the question that I want you to ask before you, uh, yourselves, before you watch a movie is that does this entangle me in such a way that it takes away from my uh, devotion to Christ, my single-minded devotion to Christ? Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do these, do these movies, do these shows, do these video games help you renew your mind Do not be conformed to this world, but by the transform, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hey, don't get me wrong; we're not prudes. Um, We love. um, I can't think of the movie. This is us. Just watch the second episode. It's awesome. There's some places where I'm not sure I should be watching it. Honestly, number one place we get entangled. Not in order, is entertainment. Second, friendships with unbelievers. And Before you raise the heresy flag, let me explain. And I want to say this right up front first, is that I want to put dating first and foremost, so that you um, young people that profess faith in Christ, or maybe adults who profess faith in Christ, and you're single and you are dating and um, maybe getting engaged, maybe wanting to get married to somebody that does not share your faith. That should not be. We're we're told to not be um, yoked with an unbeliever. Um, I've seen it work out by God's grace, but you're playing with fire. Here's what this doesn't mean. Uh, It doesn't mean that we're to be out of the world. In fact, we are, as believers, we are to be in the world so we can be salt and light. And the evidence of this truth that we're supposed to be in the world is back in verse three where Paul says, share in the suffering as a good soldier. And yes, we do probably cause some suffering amongst each other as believers, but where we are really going to incur suffering is when we stand and live out the gospel in this lost and dying world. So we are called to be in the world. And some of, some of us are so sheltered from the world that I would submit to say you should have somewhere close to the same number of unbelieving friends as you do have friends in the church. And if you don't, um, you should ask the question, why not? So we have to be in the world, but not of it. While we must seek to build rapport with non-Christians, that is a biblical mandate. We should be careful to do this in such a way that we don't love, we don't approve or celebrate what the world loves, approves, and celebrates. If we become just like the world, then we undermine our proclamation of the very gospel that we've been sent to preach. I love this quote from D.L. Moody. He says this, he says, the place for the ship is in the sea. The place for the Christian is in the world. But God help the ship if the sea gets in it. God help the ship if the sea gets in it. It will sink. I remember telling our kids that when, when, when there are non-believing friends, we encouraged our kids to have non-believing friends, is that, that you want to tug them up with the gospel rather than let you pull you down into the world and you've got to be a good student of your kids. There's at a certain place in their life they're able to do that and sometimes they're they're too young to do that. Let me give you a third one after entertainment and friendships with unbelievers. You ready for this? Marriage. Marriage. Good marriages, actually. Not bad not all bad marriages. Um, marriage. Um, Listen to this before you write me off, and this one is a heretic as well. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 to 35. This is Paul speaking again. He says this. He He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. It's short Jesus is coming back. Paul thought it was short then. If he thought it was short then, it's short now. From now on let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no good goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Listen. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, don't miss this, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You know, what was that all about? Here it is. Ladies, your number one job in life is not to please your husband. Men, your number one job in life is not to please your wife. Our number one, we've been enlisted into Christ's army so that we can please God. Be single-mindedly devoted to Christ and his gospel. Do you have a husband like that? Do you have a wife like that? If you do, they please you. Because when they are standing in and saturated in and drinking deep of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are going to please you like you've never been pleased. But when our single-minded devotion is to please our wife or to please our husband, there are times when we will compromise the gospel because we don't want to fight or whatever, whatever the case is. So hear everything I said. Don't <laughs> walk out of here and post it on Facebook and Dan it that uh, Pastor Hardy said they should never please your husband. If you want to tweet something, Listen to this again and then tweet it in context. These activities, entertainment, friendship with others that are in the world, marriage, these are these activities and relationships are a result of God's common grace to mankind, and it's given to us to be enjoyed, all of it. So my best friends are unbelievers. The warning here is not to be entangled in them. Many things are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. You see, brothers and sisters, when we are entangled in the world, the world changes us. We're entangled with Jesus. Jesus changes us. And when we, how do we know if Jesus is changing us? It's because we have more and more of a desire to please him. How do we know when the world is changing us? It's because we, we start looking more like the world. And you know what? This is the promise of the new covenant that new hearts that will choose to obey God and shun evil that is talked about in Ezekiel and Jeremiah 31. Paul now goes to the example of an athlete. He says the athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And in the ancient world that Paul is writing about, the ancient Olympics, the, 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 the winner of the race was not crowned a winner unless he both trained and competed according to the rules. And the Christian life is regularly likened to a race, not in a sense that we are competing against one another, but in other ways. Listen to this. I, I found this. Um, isn't Wikipedia always accurate? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I think this is a reliable source. It says this, the, the races of that first century, it, it was a custom for athletes, their fathers and their brothers, as well as their trainers to swear on an oath upon slices of boar flesh that they will not sin against the Olympic Games. The athletes take this further oath also that for 10 consecutive months, they will have strictly followed the regulations for training. They actually took an oath that they will train according to the rules, and they will compete according to the rules. Let me describe this further. The ancient Olympics had lots of rules and regulations. Here are some of them. Women were not allowed to compete. Chauvinistic pigs. I don't know why that was. Married women were not allowed to watch because the men competed naked. It's awkward. You <laughs> think that's what Paul's ta- what uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says that, that let every, get rid of every encumbrance as we run the race? <laughs> I'm just picturing the guy like, you know, clothing's flying off. <laughs> Only free men, not slaves, could speak, that could speak Greek were allowed to compete. Once you entered, you cannot leave the Olympics. In general, if people disobeyed the Olympic rules, then they would have to pay a fine, and the money would help build statues to Zeus. Or they'd get whipped. In this final one, if married women were found watching the Olympics, they would be thrown off the mountain. <laughs> historical example of there's historical examples of athletes that come to mind that, that came in first and they were not crowned the or they were crowned the winner. Some of them because they cheated. New England, New England Patriots. Lance Armstrong. Barry Bonds. Mark McGuire. How about Rosa Ruiz? Anybody know that name? Yeah. What year was that? Is that 84? Was it in the 80s? She not only won the marathon event in the Olympics, but she broke the record. And then somebody found her on tape like at mile 15 getting on the subway and getting off the subway at mile 25. True story. Rosa Ruiz, right? We're to run the race lawfully as Christians. Not to to win it, by the way, but because Christ already won it for us. The crown that we're going to receive at the finish line is a crown of righteousness given by the righteous judge. Our training and playing according to the rules will never justify us. That if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have been declared innocent of every past, present, and future sin. You are fully justified. And you run the race because Christ has, run, has won it for you. Listen to Paul's words at the end of his letter in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In the time of my departure, his death has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, henceforth laid up, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that crown of righteousness awaits you, brothers and sisters, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus for the remission of your sins. I've played in some golf tournaments over the years. And I don't know if there's anybody in here that's played golf with me. I know there's been, the first service there was. But you go, wow, you played in golf tournaments? I didn't even know you really golfed. But I played in some tournaments over the years, and the prize, the prize was sometimes a, a trophy or, or a gift certificate, or sometimes it was actually a lunch or a dinner with a famous person. John Elway, Steve Watson, T-Bone Pickens, Donald Trump back in the day. The Art of the Deal. And that was, having lunch or dinner or um, a weekend with one of those guys was actually more attractive to me, I say that in actually kind of a confession kind of way, than receiving a, a, uh, one time we won a trip to Hawaii, Nancy and I did, because I was in a foursome with like some three other really good golfers. But this is, what, this, is what, this, is the, this is actually what's awaiting us is that we're not just going to get Jesus for lunch or dinner, but we, the prize for every Christian running this race is eternity with the triune God. The eternity with the triune God where we'll be with him, worshiping him, where there's no sin, there's no suffering, and there's no more death. And he gives the third example Paul does to Timothy of the hardworking farmer. He says it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Um, Initially it was the the single-minded soldier, then it was the obedient um, runner, now it's the hardworking farmer. And Paul is most likely referring to here, hardworking farmer um, that is bringing a, a harvest of souls. There were some commentators that said it was talking about a harvest of holiness in the believer. But I believe it really, the context here is referring to a crop or a harvest of souls, converts to Jesus Christ. And in this harvest, like many other aspects of life, the paradox of, of providential concurrence is at work. Have you ever heard those two words before in here? You have, you just forgot. Providential concurrence, I won't, you might even want to write it in your Bibles because it explains a lot of, of things that are paradoxical. And what providential concurrence means is that God in His providence cooperates with our actions and our prayers to bring forth His goodwill and purpose. Don't know how it works. I know He's sovereign. I know that salvation is all from Him, that He chooses us. We don't choose Him, but there's a providential concurrence that somehow He uses our prayers and He uses our actions to save people. In John 4, Jesus told His disciples that the harvest is plentiful. And you, you might remember this, where it was Jesus with the Samaritan woman, and she finds out that Jesus is the Messiah, and she jets into her town to tell everybody. And then Jesus is standing there at the well with his disciples, looks off down, the, down the road, down the mountain, and sees this herd of people coming to him, because a woman had just told Everybody about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says this to his disciples that are waiting for this, this herd coming towards him. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? When you, when you plant, think about planting corn, it's four months before the harvest. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You see, working hard in the harvest is actually a responsibility and a great privilege for believers and it brings joy. The sower and the reaper will rejoice together. What's it mean to be a hard-working farmer? Hard-working signifies toil and and growing weary and exhausted and being tired. We live in a Christian culture that values rest, actually. Um, That we, in the circles that I run in, we talk a lot about rest because God talks a lot about Rest. And, and, and I'm in a, a generation, I've been told by some of my younger brothers, that my generation um, is actually the generation that says that I'd rather burn out than rust out. <clears throat> a little bit of rust coming up there. <clears throat> and I think, you know, just like every generation, the pendulum swings, and now what I, what I see amongst some younger generations is that, that you got to make sure you get the rest. you got to make sure you get the rest. you got to make sure you get the rest. God is all about rest. God created the universe and rested. That we're called to have a Sabbath rest each week. And that, that when we rest, the world still revolves. And God still saves people even when we're rest, resting. But we don't talk enough about hard work. Hard work in the ministry, Hard work in the um, harvest. You see, Paul worked harder than all the others, but it was the grace of God that brought growth. Listen, listen to this, First 1 Corinthians 15,10 through 11. Paul says, "But by the grace of God, I am what I am." And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, now get this, this is really profound. Paul says that Paul says that, by the grace of God I am who I am. It's by God's grace I am who I am. But God didn't save me in vain. And then he goes on to explain why that is. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. I was saved by grace. I wasn't saved by works, but I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. What Paul is saying is, is that I am who I am because of God. It's God's message that I'm delivering. It's God that's going to do the saving. But I'm going to work my butt off by getting out there and proclaiming the gospel to this lost and dying world. And he goes, you know what, if I don't get the credit for it, I don't care. It's not me that's saving people, he says. It's it's not me that's getting the credit. He says, I'm just going to work hard by God's grace. I don't care who gets the credit. I just pray that people are saved. Even though Paul worked hard, he knew the results were up to God, and he took none of it, none of the credit. It's in this harvest that God gives the growth Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 5-9 through 9, He says, what then is Apollos? He's just a man What is Paul? I'm just a man Servants through whom believed As the Lord assigned to each He says, I planted, Apollos watered But God gave the growth so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. Do you see yourself as God's fellow worker? I mean, fellow worker. That's how we're described. I mean, that's crazy that God who... who um, ultimately draws people to himself, that he uses us, that we are fellow workers, that we are actually partners in the gospel with the triune God. Sowing and reaping is hard work. Souls are harvested by tears and sweat and pain, especially in prayer and especially in friendship. If, you've, if you can think back, and I know a lot of you um, live in this place right now, and I praise God for that. And some of you got to think back a little ways where, where God used you. But if you've, had, if you've befriended somebody in the world, it's hard work. Um, there's friends that I had that are in the world that they're not hard work to love, actually, but they're, they're hard work to persevere th- with. That to, to do this dance like, wow, you know, if I, if I really come at them with the gospel, I might lose their friendship. But I've got, I've got one friend that I've been getting over the last five or six months that is this big dude, played football. Um, he uh, has been married eight years. He's got two little beautiful kids. Hellions, but beautiful. And he came up to me about three weeks ago on a Friday. and He says, can I talk to you? And I met with him. He said, he said my wife wants to leave me. Eight years, he's 34 years old. My wife wants to leave me. And we got together. I shared the gospel with him. And he said thanks, and I gave him a little book to read. He's, here we are three weeks later, he hasn't, two weeks later, he hasn't read it yet. Told me on Friday that his wife moved out and moved in with a man who's married. It's hard work. Like I, I, there, there's nothing in my flesh that wants to go anywhere near that. I got enough problems of my own, quite honestly. It's hard work. But the most loving thing I can do to this man is that is yes, I, can, I, I, I prayed with him and I pray for him. I give him some practical advice to pursue her. But the best thing I can do for this man is share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may not fix his marriage, but it'll give him hope. It'll give him peace that surpasses all understanding. It's hard work. And Paul says here about the farmer. He says, "It's a hard-working farmer who had to have the first share of the crops." And, and I really wasn't quite sure what Paul was saying there. that it's the hard-working farmer that would have the first share of the crops. But this is what I think it's saying. And when I, my wife is a gardener, I'm, I'm not. I'm an eater. <laughs> first meat, then vegetables. But when I, she's out there scrambling because we've got a freeze coming tomorrow. And, the, and she's out there, you know, she's picking raspberries and tomatoes and um, jalapenos. And she picks one, takes a chomp off another, picks another, takes a chomp off of it. And she, she gets to enjoy the fr- first fruits of her labor. And there's, there's a sense here where Paul is telling Timothy that the hardworking farmer gets to enjoy the first fruits of his labor. And I believe that that first fruits is actually to be blessed or to be happy as a result of his gospel labor. Watch this in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Paul says this, though I am free from all, I've made, and this is hard work, just listen to this work. And though I am free, it's just hard work even reading it. For, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though, though being myself not under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. To the... M- To the weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Do you think Paul knows that he has a responsibility in this whole salvation process? Listen to the last line. I do it all for the sake of what? For the gospel that I might share with them in its what? In its blessings, in its happiness. You want to be happy, there's no greater happiness. There's no greater blessing than sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ than see God in his providence take that word that's implanted in the heart and create a new creation. There's nothing that makes you happier. Some of you have experienced it. But I want to tell you this, that that same happiness should come from just sharing the gospel, even if nobody comes to Christ. Even if nobody comes to Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's up to God. Let me just summarize really quickly verses three through six, and then we'll finish on verse seven. Single-minded devotion of the soldier starts with a single-minded devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ and remembering the cost of being enlisted. That yeah, you've been adopted. I mean, there's so many different metaphors that are true. You've been adopted, you've been brought into God's kingdom. And you've been enlisted into his army. All grace. You weren't a good soldier. But he brought you in anyways. Now because of Jesus' shed blood, you are a good soldier. And this single-minded devotion will compel you to live in obedience to the rules like an athlete. And then it's in drinking deep of the gospel, desiring to live according to the rules, that will compel us to do the hard work of sowing and harvesting. In verse 7, I was so both confused and scared when I saw verse 7. And the more that I dove into it, the more that I just chewed on it, it is, it is such an amazing verse. He says this, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul's acknowledging that these instructions that he's given to Timothy are both hard to understand and they're hard to live out. You see, the scriptures are not given to us just to be read randomly. They're, they're not just to be taken a verse here and there out of context and, and slapped um, on whatever. But, but the scriptures are to be thought over, to be heated, to be considered, to be pondered. The most common word used in the Bible to describe this thinking over is what? To meditate on to meditate on. We're told that when when we meditate on God's word, we will have success in living out our Christian life, that we will be blessed and happy. Listen to Joshua chapter 1, 7 through 8. And Joshua is very much like a Timothy in the Old Testament, that Joshua is being handed the mantle from Moses to lead Israel into the promised land. He says this, Jesus, God says this to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the, to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success. Anybody want to have good success? That you might have good success. Wherever you go, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all, to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The psalmist says the same thing. Blessed is the man, happy is the man, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, getting entangled with the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You want to be happy? You want to be successful in this Christian life? Meditate on God's word. So how do you do it? A million dollar question. If you grab a dictionary and you look up the word meditate, you're probably gonna see a synonym called ruminate. And a lot of you don't know what ruminate is unless you are farmers or have cows or know somebody that has a cow or read some kids' book on cows. Rumination is what a cow does when she chews her cud. She rolls her cud over her cud over and over in her mouth. The cow eats the grass, the cow chews it up, and it sends it to their stomach like right away. I thought that it always meant like chew, 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 for it means chew it up, swallow it, sit in the stomach, then after a while the cow burps it back up with a new and renewed flavor. And then he chews on that burped up grass and some other grass and does the whole process over again. You know what happens? They get every ounce of the nutrition from that grass. Every ounce. And medica- meditating on a scripture is just like that. It's thought digestion. God wants us to get every ounce of spiritual nutrition out of his word. He wants us to chew on it, to digest it, and then chew on it some more. It's one of the greatest privileges I get by being the, that get to preach so much up here. Is that I get to I get to be like terrified when I look at this passage and go, what am I going to do with this? And then I ruminate on it. I chew it, I swallow it, burp it back up, grab a little more scripture, stuff it in there. And the Spirit of God does his thing. This is one of the reasons why at Windsor Community Church we think that, that it's a good thing for community groups to um, discuss the sermon from Sunday morning. There's only so much you can get. I mean, how many of you remember Providential Concurrence? Like two of you. I've said it a hundred times. Pay attention. No, there's at least I understand you're coming here with all kinds of distractions. Sometimes the coffee's weaker than other times. But it's one of the reasons that we do this in community groups is so that, that, that you can, we can ruminate on what was taught on Sunday morning. Would it be me or Chris or Pat or John? Whatever's being taught. That, that There's probably a minimum of 10 as much as 20 hours going into a sermon, believe it or not. You're going, wow, you spent more than two hours on this? I would encourage you, by the power of the Spirit of God, to... Um, to want to go deeper in God's Word. If you're, if you're in four different Bible studies, if you're in Bible study fellowship, if you're in community uh, uh, Bible study, if you are um, coming to Sunday morning sermons, um, you're doing heart-to-heart, um, you're doing five different things, um, deep dive into a couple of those. Deep dive into a couple of those so you can ruminate on, on the words. Don't, don't have 16 different things going on. That's the way I am. I'm kind of ADD. I've, I've got five or six books going at the same time. Listen to what the psalmist says. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. His word is meant to be understood. If you know Jesus, you have God's spirit, and and his spirit illuminates his word. And let me just finish with this. I want to give you three questions to consider as you meditate on God's word. Question number one, who are you, Lord? Lord? One of our core pursuits is encountering God in his word. Who are you, Lord? Number two is, who am I? And number three is, what shall I do? And what those three questions will do as we study the Bible, and I actually, there's something in me that even bristles about the the, the word study the Bible. I want to study the triune God. And the goal of, of studying the Bible is to know triune God, to know who I am and what to do. And so as we study the triune Lord in the Bible, it causes us to look upward to God, inward to ourselves and outward to other people. Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you. Um, God, we thank you that you um, never get tired of us. God, we thank you that we um, live on this side of the canon be informed, and this side of the Guggenheim press, um, this side of of, of uh, iPhones and Androids, God, where we've got your living and active and abiding word um, at our fingertips whenever we want it. And go, Lord, I, I, I don't know if I've thought about this, even as I'm praying this to you, it, it, that seems like it's also a problem, because we are over-familiar with this book that can be accessed. Um, anywhere, at any time. And God, I pray that that you would give us a um, single-minded desire to be devoted to you. And God, that that the one who enlisted us by laying his life down for us, by, by taking the proverbial hit on the cross so that we would never have to take the hit. God, we thank you that that, um, that you have instructed us to um, live according to this book, this good book. And I thank you, Lord, that our obedience does not save us, that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And I pray that that beautiful truth that enlisted us would would drive us to want to live joyfully joyfully obedient lives to your word. And God, as a part of that obedience, I pray that we would be uh, the hardest working church, little church on the planet. I thank you, God, that we, that, that Lord Jesus, that you earned our salvation. That there's nothing we did to earn it, and I pray God that because of that, that we would just work out our salvation, that we would be ones who are risking relationships um, in our context, in our um, in our Jerusalem, um, for Your glory and for the sake of the elect, and God's people. Say, Amen.